Thank you to our sponsors for supporting this episode of Troxel, Arc IT, NCARB, and Avail. We'll share more about them later on in the episode. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Actually, that's not true for this episode at all, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So in this episode, I welcome Rita Carter. Rita is a higher education client leader at DLR Group and a director of EDI Plus J at AIA Orange County, California, and is an advisor to the Women in Architecture Committee. Her bio on LinkedIn reads, As an architect and humanitarian, I combine my love for human-centered and resilient design strategies with my passion for global connections, hands-on client and community service, mentorship, and team building. I've been wanting to have Rita on the podcast for quite a while now to discuss the issue of loyalty to a firm versus the stigma of moving to different firms for various reasons, including career goals, flexibility and work-life balance, project experience, exciting project opportunities and curating a resume, leadership opportunities, getting out of one's comfort zone, finding one's calling, salary and benefits, culture fit, and changing priorities in life. Our paths have crossed many times over the years, and it was my absolute pleasure to finally get her on the show. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Rita Carter. Rita, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you again and uh, to have you. Thank you, Evan. Good to be here. Not nervous at all. So not nervous at all. Good. Uh, (laughs) This is important. So Rita, this is a different type of episode for this podcast. Usually this podcast is about the co-evolution of technology and architecture. And I think this, this is a conversation I've been wanting to have specifically with you for a long time. And the reason is, is for some reason, I identify you as what we're going to talk about today, <laughs> good or bad. But I think like I've gotten pretty worked up sometimes when I think about the way the profession reacts to people moving around inside of it. And there's two, I think there's two camps to that. There's kind of the, the people who are very much thinking that they need to be invo- actively involved in the, the retention of great staff. And then there's other, I guess, on the staff side, which everybody who works at a company is staff, not not just the, the leaders or the the underlings. I'm looking for something else. And that could mean that could mean a different opportunity. That could mean a different like aspects to the career of an architect. And that could it could mean a lot of different things. So I, I just wanted to kind of let's start with a little bit of backstory and and maybe you try to understand why I associate you with moving Take around <laughs> in the profession. <laughs> Did you, do you want to talk about it or do you want to tell my, you want me to tell my story? I want you to tell your story about how, like just, just the twists and turns that maybe you've seen in your career and, and whether they were 
intentional, unintentional, somewhere in between, whether you saw it coming, whether you didn't see it coming and, and just give people, cause I think a lot of people will identify with many different aspects of what's happened in your circuitous path in architecture. Sure. Yeah. I feel like I should have my resume up so I can remember all of yeah. it. <laughs> I'll talk about it in some generalities. I started working in the industry when I was an undergrad, Cal Poly Pomona. In part, it's because I needed to work and make money. And uh, so it was kind of interesting to start working at Cal Poly Pomona while I was attending Cal Poly Pomona as an intern. Seeing how the sausage is made. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. (laughs) So the evolution of my career and where I've worked, I feel like happened, I think it happened naturally. That's the best way I can explain it. There wasn't anything super intentional about every single move. Some of them were intentional. Some of them were circumstantial. For example, when I was interning at Cal Poly, I had met with uh, one of the architects that was doing work at the campus, and it happened to be HMC. And the gentleman gave me his card and said, if you want to work at a real firm, give me a call. I said, okay. So that was like by luck and by chance. I was curious, gave him a call, went over there and started interning. So that was a happy, happy accident. Two years later, I got an opportunity to go work on the client side, making a a lot more money, dollars an hour. And, you know, when you're young, you're like, $20 an hour. Wow. Yes, let's do it. So made that that was the driver. Yeah, at the time. (laughs) Right, right. Made that move. Two years later, I graduated and I got laid off because they were downsizing that department. So I came back to the firm where I started. Worked there a couple of years. Decided to do my master's in New York. So left the firm again to go to New York to get my master's at Columbia. I think that's right when I rejoined HMC for my second term as well. HMC Architects, for those who don't know. but uh, yes. and, and I think I sat in your desk. I think I moved like right into your desk. So, and they're like, oh, do you know Rita? Like, yeah, I know. I knew of you at that point. Um, so that was, and it was interesting to me that you had moved to the other side of the country. Yeah. Yeah. The ghosts of Rita in the HMC halls. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Went to New York, did my master's, graduated in 2008, re- you know, recession issues, right? Everybody graduating, looking for a job in New York City. There's a lot of firms out there. So I had given myself a deadline. If by end of August, I didn't land a job, I was going to come back to California. New York is not kind to you if if you don't have any cash, (laughs) if you don't have any money. Luckily, I found a job at a firm. It was a South Korean firm. The office was based in New York, worked there a couple of years, but I wasn't very happy about that. Um, The type of work I was doing was fine, but I I felt something was missing. One, I needed to make more money. New York was expensive to live uh, if you're not making decent money. Two, I felt like in my heart, I, I needed something that had meaning. And so I started volunteering with Architecture for Humanity. They had a really big presence in New York City. And I thought, fantastic. Started volunteering instead of working another job at, like, let's say, Banana Republic making nothing. I figured if I volunteer, I will get some experience, get ex- more exposure. And to be honest with you, I feel like the volunteer gigs that I had while I worked really helped set me up for how quickly 
up the leadership chain my career ended up going in the future. Because not only did I volunteer, I also took on board membership positions. I put on programs and uh, workshops for youth and outreach events and what have you, fundraisers. So it was pretty involved and pretty interesting kind of work. At some point, I decided, uh, so my now husband had gone to New York to get his master's as well. He decided he wanted to stay after he graduated. He couldn't find a job there. But in the meantime, when he said he wanted to stay, I started looking for a new job too. I said, I want to try to get something more meaningful that pays well. I got a new job at a LA-based firm <laughs> that had an office in New York through a mutual connection, Kevin O'Brien, who you may remember, who we knew from HMC, who was now at this other firm. But about two weeks after I started, my husband couldn't find a job in New York, came back to California, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be in New York by myself again? <sighs> okay. <laughs> I tried to find an opportunity to transfer when it came up, and it didn't seem like they were interested in transferring me out to, to L.A., I decided, okay, I can't be in New York by myself doing nothing with no family, not me really making enough money to be able to do the things I want. So I ended up leaving that company to come back here. And I went back to HMC. <laughs> they, they welcomed me with open arms and it was really nice that they did that. Spent a couple of years working there, got married. And uh, I think one of the questions or things you may have posed earlier is, was any of this intentional, the movement? Some of it, I said, was intentional. Some of it was circumstantial. After being at HMC for a couple of years again, a recruiter reached out to me. And, you know, recruiters are always doing their outreach thing. Most of the times, most of us ignore them. But an opportunity to work in downtown LA came up and I thought, you know what, let me, let me just see what this is about. <laughs> and while I'm seeing what this is about, let me see what else is out there in LA. I accepted an offer at a firm that I ended up only being there for maybe six to seven months. And in part, it only had to do with the fact that culturally, I feel like we didn't click. I felt like what I wanted to do and what the firm was about when I was there for a little while, I didn't feel like there was, you know, we were jiving. Plus, you know, when you hear someone in a leadership position complaining about what they can and can't do, it's kind of disheartening for someone earlier in their career like, if, if this person in leadership can't do what they want to do, how am I supposed to feel like I, what am I going to achieve? So I ended up making a move to another firm in downtown LA where I did know an individual. We, we connected really well. Like the chemistry was really there. And I feel like that speaks volumes. I was there a couple of years, but you know, the problem in our industry, which I, I believe a lot of firms may still function this way. Maybe some of them are changing. Doing 60, 70, 80 hours was normal and expected. And if you didn't do it, it wasn't really, it didn't look good, the optics. Yeah. So fast forward a few years, the gentleman who hired me left and I thought, oh my gosh, I can't keep functioning like this. And back then at that company, you couldn't work remotely. You were tethered to your desk. So if you needed to come in and work on the weekends or late, you had to go into the office. So it wasn't very flexible or feasible. Soon after he left, and I realized I really want to live work balance, I made an intentional choice to leave and look for a company that really cared for the live work balance and the family support. We were thinking to start a family. 
you cannot start a family working 80 hours a week and you're stressed. It's just not going to happen no matter how hard you try. So that's when I made the move down to Little at the time, down in Newport Beach, which is closer to home. And soon enough, I got pregnant and it was great. You know, I felt good, live, work, balance, everything is going smooth. And then my boss decided to leave (laughs) when I was about a month pregnant. So that opened up the door for me to step into the leadership position at Little. And I interviewed for it. And it's interesting, Evan, like the interview process for a position like that when you're a woman, and especially when you're expecting and you're in your first trimester, there's a lot of questions that come up in your head and, and, you know, your closest friends and family might be trying to talk you through some things. Are you sure you're going to be able to do this? It's going to be a lot of responsibility. You're going to be tired. You already have your own self-doubt. Right. And (laughs) And, other people piling on. And I don't think they were saying these things to dissuade me. I think they were just wanting me to think through it and make the best decision. And, you know, me being hardheaded, of course I could do this. Absolutely. I could do this. Don't, don't question me. I'm a badass. <laughs> <laughs> Interviewed for the position, got the position. And once I passed my first trimester, that's when I told the leadership I was pregnant. Because first trimester, mm-hmm. there's a lot of unknowns. Right, of course. And it was met, like we were speaking a little say, bit how, earlier. How was that received? It was received well, but the, you know, the initial response was that of surprise. What? Like, They didn't say this out loud, but you could kind of see it. Why didn't she tell us before? Fast forward, I did have another a conversation with another individual in leadership, not who was part of the decision-making process. And he said to me, he said, you know, I thought about it. I kind of wish you told us before, but I'm glad you didn't, because I would not have wanted that to be part of how we made our decision. I thought, thank you. I appreciate that actually. So the one, the one warning I give anybody, especially women in a position where they want to step up into a promotion or a leadership position and they're expecting or they're trying to start a family the one warning sign not to say not to do it but just be prepared that it's going to be increased responsibility simultaneously in your job and at home and especially if this is the first time you're doing this kind of job um, it can get overwhelming so learning to delegate, learning to communicate, learning when to say no become increasingly important. So I was at Little for a while, really trying to make it work. There was quite a bit of struggles and the challenges I faced there were circumstantial. I mean, there was quite a bit of turnover. You know, I think I did a relatively good job, all things considered. But soon after that, I, I think I recognized that I've done everything I could to help the studio. and from a financial business perspective, I wasn't able to make it be better, so to speak. So I honestly started looking to see if I can go to the owner's side, because when you're on this side of the industry, when you're the service provider, you get kicked out, kicked around quite a bit. You have some clients who, that are super nice, super understanding, and there are some other very demanding clients. Some of them may not be respectful in how they speak. And so you're constantly having to balance being professional and cordial, but also being firm. And after a while, it can be pretty tough when you're also feeling the pressure on the business side to to be profitable. So yeah, I was looking to go to the owner's side and um, I thought, let's just see where it goes. Started having conversations with some of the institutions in Orange County. And I reached out to a former boss to ask her opinion about the decision I was 
about to make. And she mentioned that she was looking to hire a seller doer, which is what I was already doing at, at Little. And that is like how I ended up at DLR Group, which is where I am now. Working with her, uh, it's a bigger team, lots of support, lots of women, which <laughs> I haven't worked with that many women before. So it's kind of refreshing. So again, you know, I went through the interview process, got the offer, negotiated the offer, accepted the offer. Hey guys, guess what? I'm pregnant. <laughs> so that's like the, I don't know if this is the short version of my story or not, but as you could see, some of the changes I've made, some of them were circumstantial. Some of them were out of curiosity and some of them were very intentional because my priorities had changed over the years. My priorities for work, live work balance, my priorities to wanting to start a family and focusing on, you know, just the one job rather than being spread thin, wearing 12 different hats. So that's the journey. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it's like Mr. Toad's wild ride, right? It's all over the place. And, and I think what you say about, about the outside circumstances that are changing without the, without the people on the inside in, in the firms that you're working for being able to see that, because I think there's, there's, we could probably talk about that for, for quite a while. There's, there's people who try to understand and have a relationship with their employees, and there's others who just don't. And to me, it it kind it falls pretty squarely into those those two categories. There are people who are very intentional about it, building relationships so that they see the warning signs. They they understand the pressures that you're feeling, and so how that could affect performance or all kinds of things. And then there's others who are t- totally shocked when something happens because, and I, I want to generalize a little bit here because I think it, it just makes it easier to talk about, which is, wait, your life isn't just like mine. I think I, I see that behavior quite a bit, which is you have a young family. My kids have already graduated high school and here's how much time I can dedicate to architecture. So therefore you should too, because they don't have that empathetic viewpoint of what you're going through or first of all they might not even see it they might not be aware of it but they also just don't understand it anymore because it's not their day to day and they don't take the time to try to understand that and i think that's a huge problem inside of the industry and to make matters worse being a woman who it wants to start a family which means something very different than when a man is doing that in a male dominated traditionally industry when you don't want to put in the 60 to 80 hours per week it just does not compute for some people because of those really deep ruts that have been carved for decades and decades and decades and that this is just the way it works this is the way we do it and so it's really hard to get out of those ruts and as a matter of speaking like that's that's how the thinking has evolved and so man there's so many things here that are trying to be kind of negotiated um, mentally for, for this to make sense. And, and so when, when you do something out of character for architecture, it doesn't compute. Right. And so like, like when, when our paths crossed at HMC, I remember 
when you left there and went to, I can't remember where you went. I guess it was, was it AC Martin at that point? And it was, and, and you, okay. So, so this is where things we, we start maybe to, to reveal a little bit of the vulnerability side of things, which is like, what was your position and what was the position that you went to? Cause it, they were pretty different, right. From what I can recall, you were like a project designer and then you, I can't even remember now because everybody uses different terms anyway, but. They do for the most part, they kind of the same. Um, I was a designer. I stepped into a senior designer role yeah, and it was a lot more money. Right. And, and that right there was like, <laughs> that just yeah. set bombs off. Right. For certain individuals, other people were like, yeah, like that's how it works. I mean, and there's been studies that have been put out there that say if you move around, people who move around in our industry make substantially more money, like 50% more just by moving around than if you stay somewhere. And I remember like this is another just side tangent, but somebody came back to the firm at a higher level principal. And when they had left, it was just like project manager, senior project manager came back as principal and you know what comes along with the principal title, like a substantial pay increase. And guess who didn't get a pay increase? All the people who stayed there, right? So this person comes back and, and what, what I saw was a giant middle finger <laughs> to the people who stayed at the firm versus the people who move around. So, and, and the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you or just have this conversation out loud is because there are so many people struggling with this, struggling with kind of the, I don't want to say ethics, but you know, like what I mean by like, is it cool to move around or not? Like, how am I perceived when I do that? What are the ups and the downs and, and all of these things? And like, that is a huge mental burden to shoulder in addition to what people are already doing day to day at work and what they're doing at home. Yeah. So the one thing I would uh, advise anybody thinking about making a move is, first of all, just think of what it means for you. What? Why are you doing it? Let's try to like block out the noise of what are other people going to think? How is this going to be perceived? Um, because Because the truth of the matter is everybody does move around, including people in leadership including the boss that you're afraid of what their reaction is going to be when you leave. So those same recruiters are going after them most likely that they're are going after you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So number one, just focus on yourself. Are you, and ask yourself a series of questions. Am I happy with where I am doing what I'm currently doing? Am I happy with the job? Am I happy with the people and the culture? Pay is only one fr- one fraction of the whole equation. You know, pay when you move around does tend to increase, and that's a nice perk, but that should not necessarily be your driver because a lot of times, if you move just for the pay and but you haven't vetted out the firm's culture, which was my experience a couple of times, if you haven't vetted out the culture. If you haven't vetted out with them the things that are important to you. So for me, live-work balance was important. But to someone else, something else might be important. It might be doing high design. It might be working on high-profile projects in you know, the Middle East or China or anywhere else in the world. 
people's priorities are different. So I would say evaluate what your priorities are. And if you're thinking to make a move because your current position doesn't allow you to fulfill your goals and and your priorities, then that should be your driver. I did get a piece of advice early on in my career that says when you're young, try to move around as much as, not as much as you can, but it's okay to move around more when you're young because different experiences of different firms and different cultures, uh, different project types, uh, you may be okay doing ADA upgrades all the time but you might want something more. And my sense is we all went to architecture school to want a little bit more. ADA upgrades are, are they're important projects, but you, you may want something else. You may realize that, let's say you're working in healthcare, but that may not be a market sector you're interested in. Maybe you want to dabble in mixed use housing or education. So getting the, a broad experience early on in, in your career is good. If you're able to do it in one firm and move around within the firm, that's fantastic. But a lot of times that's not necessarily possible. So you might have to move firms to get that different experience. I have touched a variety of market sectors that my favorite is education. I like the visioning process with the users and getting their input and seeing a project come to life that reflects very much what the vision of the user group is going to be. I personally did not like the developer world with mixed use housing. That's my personal preference. Other people like that stuff and they're good at it. Let them do it. (laughs) I I wouldn't have known though, if I hadn't dabbled a little bit in it early on. Yeah. I think, I think something that my mind is going back to is kind of that expectation that you're going to be just like your supervisor. I think a lot of supervisors are looking for their replacement, which means their replacement looks just like them in many different ways. And when you were talking about finding out what's important to you, I think it's also important to translate that to them so that they understand that. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen it where, and maybe maybe you have experience with this, but it's sharing on social media that cool thing that you did over the weekend. And it's like, how come you're not working? And and not having, because that person maybe doesn't have the boundaries that you have, because what's important to you is different than what's important to them. And just having that understanding between people and not just leaving it to chance that they, or or making that a painful thing to figure out by not talking about it over time is... I think that happens in inside of the profession a lot. And I think there is an expectation that you will experience the profession like how I experience the profession. I see this. I, I just had this conversation with a, with an old colleague of ours. And I, okay, so I have a regular mountain bike and I have an electric mountain bike. Guess which one my son likes better, right? <laughs> he wants the, he, he likes the electric. Nice. Why? Because it makes biking easier, right? <laughs> of course. And, and, um, What's interesting is, okay, so let's just leave the whole cost thing off off the table. They do cost more, but as far as I'm I'm his father and I'm like so this is where where the where I'm I'm like of of two minds. Do I want him to enjoy mountain biking or do I want him to experience mountain biking like I experienced mountain biking? Do I want him to earn his place in mountain biking or do I want to just go there? Okay, again, cost aside, if that didn't matter, would I just buy him an electric bike so that he could become an even better biker way sooner than I did? 
and and I I and, and keep him engaged and too. keep him engaged right. and and I think yeah. I think architecture like I'm I'm thinking of that from like a parent child relationship and I think of that in architecture as well when I'm leading a team I think of it as like how do I develop these people so that they're amazing architects and not treat them like children who have to experience it how I experienced it so that they will respect my position because then they will understand what it took to get there versus how do I empower them to get a leg up as early as possible so that they can go farther than I ever dreamed of. And that is a a very different point of view for a leader slash manager. The best advice I ever got and our mutual acquaintance, this latched on for him as well. When I, I mentioned this to him years ago, I had a, a mentor at when I was working at Apple, and this is like a total side job. And he saw my potential. He saw my potential trajectory. I think like you see in yourself, right? You, a lot of the things you're talking about are trajectory based and they might not be like super strategic three moves ahead in chess, but, but you kind of have a sense of where you want to go and how you might get there versus spending all that time in one place when it takes 20 years. If I make these three moves, I'll get there in five. But but you probably have a sense of where you want to go and and where you want to be. And, and so then you decide how you're going to do that. Do you want to wait around or not? But he said to me, he, he saw that in me. And he said, my job as a manager, and I think I'm leaving the distinction between leader and manager out right now, because I think they're, they are two different skill sets. But he said, he said, my job as your manager is to remove the red tape and get out of the way. And that's stuck with me. And I think that's a very different mindset. That to me was the first time I'd ever heard like a true definition of leadership because he wasn't threatened by my trajectory. He knew it was complimentary anyway, right? Like getting to his position is difficult. So by sharing as much as he could, he, he wasn't, he wasn't threatening his own place in that, which I think a lot of people in architecture feel like. And so, like, I, I kind of go back to this parent-child relationship of, like, the reason I give my kids advice is so that they don't make the same mistakes I did. They don't always take it, but they, that's why. And so, and so you know, now the, now the latest thing is this electric mountain bike thing, right? And, and I see it as, like, if you have this electric mountain bike, you've, you've leapfrogged, you've cut the line. And, and, but it is at odds with how I think about how people should be treated within the profession. <laughs> Managers and leaders come in all shapes and sizes. A great leader will have an empathetic ear, will uh, find a way to build your trust so that you can share with them your goals, your dreams, so to speak, and your interests. And hopefully they will find a way to provide you the opportunities to get you the experience you're looking for. It's kind of an advocate. That's what how, that's how I've talked about it inside of the firm. Find an advocate for you because mm-hmm. you don't get to represent yourself or your yes. trajectory in a room that you're never invited into, but somebody else can do that for on your behalf. And by having that kind of a relationship is really important inside of this profession. Absolutely. So speaking up is so important and communication is so important. I think this is what you were getting at, Evan. And so 
for an individual who's interested in, in, in testing out working in a different market sector or moving up the ladder or moving sideways on that ladder, speaking up and whether it's an advocate who's not your supervisor or an advocate who is your supervisor, I think if it is your supervisor, it's better because they're the ones already vouching for you, your time and, and all of that. But it's also upon us to be very observant in how this person reacts, responds, and then also follows up. A lot of these managers, if they have a big ego and who are getting in your way and they want to hold on to you, they want you to go through the trenches like they did instead of going sideways or, or diagonal, which, which you can in this career. I mean, you're a prime example, Evan, of, of how a career in architecture could evolve. A manager who supports that is good and hopefully they can give you those opportunities. But if you're witnessing a manager who's talking you out of it, wanting to monopolize your time, not supporting you, then they should not be surprised when the day comes that you say you're leaving the firm. <laughs> and ironically, they are usually the ones who are surprised. Yes. <laughs> I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, there, there have been... Having been the individual who has not managed people and then also being on the side where I have managed people, being in a position where I had been trying to be open and supporting my folks and they would still leave, I, I'm not necessarily surprised. I'm understanding. I'm just bummed because like you said, like you invest time in these individuals. But I, I was in a unique situation. A lot of the people I was managing were my age or older. And that's a whole other conversation for another day. <laughs> or they lived far or they were dedicated to their previous leader. Therefore, when she left, they soon left as well. But I would say that leadership, your leader makes a big impact in the decisions that you make. If they're supportive and they're trying to give you the opportunities, great. So, sorry, I kind of segued for a sec. The point I was trying to get at is I was trying to take my own advice. When someone would come to me saying they're leaving and I would tell them, why didn't you tell me you're thinking about this? Did you not feel comfortable talking to me? So when it came for me to want to make a move, I thought to myself, well, I should at least give the leadership an opportunity to understand what my thought process is. Because if I left and I hadn't given them the opportunity, it's not fair to them. It's not fair to the firm. Not fair for anybody. Not that fairness <laughs> has anything to do with this equation, but then I gave multiple chances for them to understand my position and there was still nothing done about it. I'm talking about one specific circumstance here. So when nothing gets done about it after you've spoken your mind, then you know the writing is kind of on the wall and you kind of have been given the answer in, in, in a way or another. So you're, you're absolutely right. Like, so then that leadership cannot come back and be surprised, which they sometimes still are, <laughs> but then, you know, you, you've got to make the moves because I'm willing to bet if they were in a similar situation and they needed to make a decision to move, they will do it too. They also don't have that necessarily that loyalty to you. People who are maybe partners at a firm, their situation may be a little bit more complex. They have more of a vested interest uh, and investment in the firm. But at the end of the day, I mean, you hear this, and I, I, I don't really like hearing when people say this, you got to look out for yourself, not the business, because if the business wants to get rid of you, they will do it in a heartbeat. I don't like hearing it, but it is the truth. 
So you you do in a way have to look out for yourself and your career and your trajectory and your health, your pay increase, your job responsibility increase, and all of the above. That that loyalty thing is 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 nice to have if it if it works out. I mean, I look at some people who have been at firms for like fifteen years, and I think, wow, you are patient. <laughs> I don't know if you've been happy in your job this whole time. Maybe you have. And if you haven't, then you've been patient. Like, good for you. I would love to say one day I've been at a firm for 10 or 15 years, but I don't know if it's part selfishness, part just trying to make the move that felt right at the time. But a lot of times that that leadership component does play a big role in it. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. ArcIT. A common misconception that comes up when talking about technology and actually IT in particular is the thought that hiring a specialized company to help you with that is an expensive undertaking. And actually, the opposite is often true, especially with a company like Arc IT, because they only work within our industry and they have the expertise to know how to run IT for your business for a very reasonable price. In fact, they are honest and transparent with their pricing, and you can find it right on their website. And you can check that out at getarcit.com slash pricing. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work, I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. Because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. Let's talk about content. What is content? You're probably thinking Revit families. Well, yes, of course. But the reality is that you use dozens of applications in your workflows. How many file types and formats are you using and creating every week? Here are some of the usual suspects, CAD and modeling files like AutoCAD, Civil 3D, Rhino and Revit and SketchUp, visualization files like 3D Studio Max scenes and models, materials and assets, 
photos and imagery, including renderings, site context, and snapshots, project information like spreadsheets and product cut sheets, URLs for your intranet and external websites, and even marketing assets like your PowerPoint decks and proposals. I wish it wasn't true, but this list just scratches the surface. You know what I'm talking about. We all deal with a lot of data, and this is the new problem. The good news is, if it's digital, Avail can handle it. Avail has seen more than a thousand different file types in their platform. They've taken a very holistic approach to content management problems in the AEC market. Most of the time, someone in a firm is looking to solve a specific problem like Revit family storage, but the fact of the matter is that you should be solving for the longer term. Avail future-proofs your technology investment. Go to getavail.com today to learn more. NCARB's analysis of practice study is your opportunity to shape the future of architecture. Participate in this industry-wide survey to share your experiences and insights from working in architecture, engineering, or construction. Your feedback will help guide changes to what being a licensed architect looks like and impact how architects collaborate with other professionals in the future. Whether you're an architect or you work with architects, NCARB wants to hear from you. Make sure your voice is heard. Contribute to the analysis of practice study today. Sign up at ncarb.org slash AOP. And now let's get back to our conversation. Okay, so, you know, raising teenagers, it's like, I'm not going <laughs> to cut your toenails for you anymore. Like, only you are going to cut your toenails for you. Like, nobody else is going to do that for you. And, and, when I apply like that kind of thinking to a career, it's like there, it, it is your responsibility. It is not somebody else's responsibility to ensure that you're happy, that you have a path forward, any of those things. It is important to kind of try to find a fit of people who think like you do or can be an advocate for you. And you don't, you can't stay silent and in the, in those kinds of things, because again, nobody else is going to do that stuff for you. I wonder what you think about this whole idea of, like you said, you would love to be able to say that you've stayed at a firm for 15 years. Like there is like kind of this loyalty thing. And I, previous generations had this big time. My grandfather, I th- as far as I know, he only worked at Procter and Gamble, like his, until he retired. And now we see people in architecture who I see millennials in particular who I didn't even know this was a thing. Like I never even thought this way, but they curate their portfolio based on projects firms are doing and they will move around to get that project on their portfolio. And and I mean like honestly do the work, not just fit, not just hit hit it like at, at surface level, but actually do the work to get the experience. But then okay, what's the next project that's coming down the board and if if it's not known or if it's a dud for according to them, they're, they're going to move on. And I think like that is the, right. that, like I said, I've never once thought like that. Like, I think there's challenges that, and maybe I just haven't been like an advocate enough for myself in that way that they have. But like, if you want to work on a high rise and then a stadium and then a, you know, like these really high profile projects, you, maybe you do have to move around from firms to get that different type of experience. And I just think mm-hmm. that goes directly against this idea of loyalty for a firm. It's very hard. I haven't heard that before. So that's interesting. Yeah. So a, an individual might 
target a firm knowing that they're working on, say, I don't know, the SoFi, studio, uh, SoFi Stadium. And then once that project is over and they're interested in another type, they might move firms specifically for that project. You want to go work on a, a new airport. or Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you build a resume and you build a project type, but you also raise red flags to people who have been at a firm for a long time. It's like, why did you move around every three years? That doesn't like I if I'm going to invest in you, I need to know that. And, and again, it's no guarantees ever. Like you said, though, they could get rid of you, <laughs> the employee on a whim, right? Not a, on a whim, but but at will. Right. So there aren't any guarantees, but I think we we still kind of operate under the idea that people are going to stay somewhere for for a length of time that is pretty long. Yeah. Well, that's why I feel like employers, employers don't like turnover. Nobody likes turnover because it's expensive. It's yeah. expensive. Uh, the project types that many of us work on take years to design and construct three to five years sometimes. So having turnover on projects is not beneficial for the finances of the project from a business standpoint. It's also not beneficial for the client. The client starts asking questions. What's going on at this firm? And you try to explain yourself out of it. How many times can you actually do that? So as an employer, you want to create those environments where your staff feel supported. They're getting the experience that they need to not just build their portfolio, but if they're on the path to licensure, that they're getting the experience to help them with that. Also feeling supported if they want to venture and do something else, but there are no guarantees. All you can do is just foster that environment of support and opportunity and if the person decides to leave, <laughs> it's heartbreaking. But if you know that you've done your all and you've given it your all and the person still decides to leave, then what else could you do? But if, if you don't listen, if you don't provide the supportive environment, if you don't provide the opportunities and they leave, you, you can also not say, how did they do this? <laughs> how could they do this to me? Yeah, right. It's tough because everybody's got their own priorities and they are so different from person to person it could be geography it could be project type it could be family obligations you know it could be a whole flexibility work-life balance yeah and, yeah and speaking of flexibility now the big thing is with this great resignation that's happening a lot of it has to do with flexibility with the ability to work with a team where you are able to work remotely if you wanted to and or come into the office. I am I am very surprised when I hear some firms or offices be very strict with their policies of return to work, especially while we're still in a pandemic. We're not over this pandemic yet. <laughs> and so when you start forcing people back in, you're going to see turnover. Again, it goes back to fo fostering an environment where people feel supported. So people decide, I'm going to move and have a more flexible you know, find a job that can support me more flexibly and get paid more <laughs> and get to do the things I want to do. So that's why it's an employee's market right now. I happen to change jobs in the pandemic, not, not due to flexibility. For me, it was just due to job satisfaction and where I saw the road going on the trajectory I was on at that position. 
So everybody during the pandemic has moved for different reasons, but one of the big ones I hear is the flexibility. Having people having spent time at home, being available to their kids, if their kids' daycare is closed, being close by, being able to work, say, before the kids wake up or after the kids go to sleep so that during the day they can spend time with their kids. Once people got a taste of that, uh, it's a little bit hard to go back to an eight to five in the office without the ability to be flexible. And if you don't have kids that, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have other reasons for wanting that flexibility too. I talk about kids because I have kids, but people have all kinds of reasons for wanting that flexibility. And I think they're all potentially valid. Yeah. We saw that a lot. I changed jobs during the pandemic as well. And so it was met with surprise, which was, I thought you were, I thought you were a lifer here. I, I was one of those people who had been there for 16 years or whatever it was, 15 years. I have seen the struggle of trying to put back into place the way that it was of, even if it's just a couple days a week, I see the pushback of you're going to come into the office on Wednesdays, right? And it's like, nope, I'm not. And because I think what everybody saw was an additional set of responsibilities being placed on their shoulders, right? So you said daycare, but for a long time, there was no daycare. Got kids in school in the room next door to me. And it's like, you need to have the flexibility. And and it's interesting to think about that when it's applied to our profession, because the profession of architecture does have deadlines, yet there is an expectation that work is done when you're sitting in that chair from this hour to this hour. When the truth of the matter is, and what the pandemic taught everybody was, nope, that's not actually how it is. And that's not how it is anywhere for the most part, right? In this type of a white collar environment, for lack of a better term. No, that's the deadline. I'll get my work done and you have to trust me. And that's scary for a lot of people, but it also showed that it's actually Mm -hmm. true. I think the only (laughs) restriction in our industry is say, it's part restriction, part just the nature of construction. If you haven't, a weekly OAC meeting, owner, architect, contractor meeting. Usually that's at a set time, not necessarily set place, but ideally it's on the trailer. So you're close to the site. You can go do your site walk afterwards. But those have been, you can do those virtually and you could set them at a time when everybody could be available. So, you know, when you do the project kickoff, you could say, I'm available this day at this time. Okay, what about everybody else? You align your schedules. The negotiation. Yeah. yeah, and you can make it work. So if you have other commitments like childcare, like kids in, in school that you need to just kind of keep an eye on while they're doing the work, that you're able to manage that. Um, doing site visits a little bit more tricky. I've seen it where people um, might do a virtual site visit. The contractor might walk around and talk about the different things with their camera on. Or you might dedicate a time maybe once every two weeks to actually physically go down to the site, but still be, you still have that flexibility potentially as to when you go down and do that. So even, even in our industry, not everybody is sitting in that chair at that desk from eight to five. Even pre-pandemic, the seats were not always full because you had someone in a client meeting or someone on the construction site. But for the younger, the younger staff who may be doing more of the generation of the documentations, presentations. I think it's maybe an old school way of thinking that a lot of people need to try to break out of it. Seeing someone sitting there working doesn't necessarily mean that (laughs) they're working, right? 
it's like, I got to have an eye on you, but, <laughs> but you got to trust people. And if they don't feel trusted, there you go. That's the great resignation continues to, to show you what people are, are, are not feeling trusted. I, I mentioned it earlier about that bomb. The bombs went off when you left HMC and, and the reason bombs went off That's is because of, and it's, I'm, it's kind of, it's just the, probably the wrong term, but it's people were, when you went from one title to let's just call it two titles up or whatever it was, and you saw in yourself, your trajectory and where you wanted to go versus what other people had in mind for what your path was going to be, that divergence, the nature of that right there was, I think what raised the eyebrows and it was like, Oh, well that's not going to work out. Right. They were fortune telling at that point. Like what's the future actually? Oh, she's in for a rude awakening. Right. And she wasn't going to get there here for who knows how long. And, and this to me starts to get into, again, just kind of other stories that I've heard from other people, not necessarily my experience, but what, what do I need to do to get to the next level? Oh, just keep doing what you're doing. Well, what, when will I know that I'm ready? When will you know that I'm ready? I'll, I'll let you know. There's very much kind of this veil of opaqueness <laughs> to how things work. And I think it's because there is no set structure. There is no set standard. Everybody is a little bit different. Um, but there's also this kind of layers of expectation thrown on top of that and and mentality around you, you're going to experience it like I did. You know, there's different shades of that in there as well. What's what was your experience with with jumping from one level to another level that was not the next level, but it was a couple levels up as far as what your actual experience was, but also what the perception was and and how you how that happened. It's very interesting you say that before I actually answer that question. I want to say yeah, you're right. Like a lot of people think, well, you've got to be in this position for at least five years. Yeah. Three years is, is like, that's the company standard on yeah. a lot of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta be in the trenches for three years and then you'll move up maybe. And you might, get, everybody's the same. Yeah. And you might right? maybe like, get a little bit of a bump from a pay perspective. Right. And Oh, by the way, even if you're contributing to firm culture by writing blogs, you cannot be on any social media sites like Twitter trying to promote the company. Right. Asterisk right. sidestep. Okay. If you have time to do that. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that someone may have had the perception of she's in for a rude awakening because yes, I was, but guess what? That's how we learn and grow. If I'm going to be in a position for three to five years and grow at a snail's pace, I may not actually get to grow because I'm not stepping outside of my comfort zone. And I think we all know that the phrase growth happens outside of your comfort zone. And so, yeah, I was in for a rude awakening, but that's what helped me step up to the challenge, find ways to learn and grow and step up to the challenge. I'm repeating myself, but where I went to, uh, the challenge wasn't necessarily the increase of responsibility or knowing more of the technical way a building goes together. That was more of like a cultural thing for me. I, was, I wasn't working on very big substantial projects. Eventually I did. And I, again, I was in for a rude awakening and there were certain things people <laughs> said to me in a leadership position. I was like, oh, that's brutal, but I kind of think they're right. 
But again, that's when you learn and grow. Um, I got to a leadership position relatively young. It wasn't my plan. It happened, but I think in part it was a happy accident because I made the leaps that I did and I took a chance on myself and I learned the hard way and with the rude awakening way. But again, I mean, some of us are hungry to continue to learn and grow and keep ourselves relatively uncomfortable. After a while, Mm -hmm. you tell, (laughs) at least in my situation, you tell yourself, you know what? I think I'm done being in a painful spot, (laughs) being outside my comfort zone. I think I'm going to try to like hang on to this position and try to build on it and perfect it and make it better for myself because the next jump I do is going to be really substantial with a lot more responsibility on my shoulders. And I want to make sure that that move is absolutely right. And I'm feeling ready for it. So, yep. Whoever said I was in for a rude awakening was kind of right, but guess what? (laughs) It made me better and it made me step up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because the way that I, the way that I think about Rita is that you are a natural leader. You should be in a leadership position because that is your skill set. And I think what's interesting about our profession is, nope, you still got to pay your dues and work your way up the ladder to get to the position that you're actually meant for, which is weird to me. And that's why people can move around and get into those positions faster is because like, that's what you're actually good at. And when you're in that interview and you can speak to those points and you know how you're going to achieve that at that place, And it makes sense to everybody sitting around the table. It's like a natural, whereas when you're somewhere else and they have this expectation that like, no, that's the next level is three years away. And then the next level after that is three more years after that. And then the next one is three to five. And, and, and because you kind of just get into this churn of the day-to-day business part of it, rather than strategically, where does this person fit into the business to deliver their highest and best value? And so you saw that in yourself, I think. I mean, it, you said you didn't you didn't necessarily do that on purpose, but like it's to me it's obvious that like that is where you are best serving the company, whatever the company is, it doesn't matter which company it is, like that's where you fit best. And so you're going to get there sooner because then you're doing more meaningful work that matters to you and you're going to want to show up every day to do that meaningful work because it matters so much to you. And everybody benefits from that. The people who work under you benefit from that. The company benefits from that. Your clients benefit from that because your people working on the project are happier doing what they're doing. So they're doing better work. You can see how all this works together. It's a it's an interesting conundrum, I think, that we see ourselves in because of this. Like this is the the pace at which you matriculate throughout the work, the career of architect. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Evan. Um, I didn't realize you saw me this way. And I I don't I think in a way I saw myself that way but I didn't want to like boast about it I was just like trying to still kind of pay my dues going up some sort of a ladder and I ended up there sooner than sooner than later but you're absolutely right when you talk about that you know I I was on the trajectory of being the designer right junior designer intermediate designer senior designer but it was very obvious to me when I got into that senior designer role that I'm like you know what this is actually not my strength I just happened to have fallen onto this trajectory because someone dubbed me designer 
and I happened to be on this trajectory, not the technical trajectory or the PM trajectory, but I think I had to have like a realization, like I really love design and I really appreciate design, but I'm not the kind of person who's going to sit and do 50 iterations for 12 hours straight. That's just not me. (laughs) I am more of the left brain, OCD, organize, facilitate, coordinate person. And and it's great to have you in that position as an advocate of design, by the way. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> There's so many people in those positions who are not an advocate for design. And then the designer gets kicked under the bus by that person all the time. Right. Yeah. Which is not cool. Right. So I think once I realized that, you know, I think this is my strength, I was able to navigate that a little bit better. So when the opportunity at Little came up to step into a principal position leading the higher ed studio, that that is very much like a technical role. You're doing design oversight, PM oversight construction oversight. You're doing all of that oversight plus the business side of it, the finances, which is like, who wants to do the finances and take responsibility <laughs> for that? That's not what I went to school for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I saw uh, there was something very attractive about the position for me, not from a title perspective, but I think earlier in our conversation, I mentioned that my experience with Architecture for Humanity in New York is what helped set me up for these positions. And it had to do with the fact that I was facilitating, coordinating, raising funds, managing funds. I was doing all of that from a volunteer perspective, from a community service perspective. And I thought, okay, now I can bring it to the business perspective. I have the experience in a different capacity. And so I felt very natural moving into the role, even though there was still a learning curve. And it was interesting that soon after another principal approached me and said, I'm kind of surprised that you wanted this position. I thought you would probably want to become a design director. And I thought, well, you may have thought that because when I first got to this place, I was a senior designer. Maybe I didn't talk enough about the fact that I am Excel chart driven, you know? And so... And so I think being honest with my skill sets and my strengths also helps me position myself for success. So when I am asked, hey, Rita, do you want to lead the CA on this project, a very complex project, I'm also comfortable in saying, look, I'm comfortable in the field. I'm not comfortable being the only person responsible for the CA on this very complicated project because I don't have enough experience in the field. I would still need a senior architect who I can lean on. So, but if you want me to do the project management piece of it, I'm so happy to do that. I can manage your budget, your resources, your people, keep the client happy, make sure deliverables are on track. And so being honest about my skill sets is also very important. So going back to what you were talking about regarding making a move in order to position myself for the future, I'm, I'm kind of glad I did that in hindsight, because I, I think I would have been miserable if I had stayed the course, at least for me. Other people, I think <laughs> others, people are so patient and they'll be like, sure, I'll just cruise along and see how long it takes for me to get into this position I really want. 15 years? Sure, I'll put it in 15 years. I'm not that kind of person myself. And so, yeah, I think I would have just been miserable. And it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked out either <laughs> the the other distinction that I'll make between staying at one place versus going to somewhere else is typically when you stay somewhere, you have to 
do the job before you get the title, before you, you have to show that you're capable of being bestowed the title of whatever the thing is that, that you're shooting for versus if you go somewhere else, there is room for you to grow into the position that you're, that you're hired under, like swing for that and really show that, yeah, like this is what I want to stretch myself to get there. And, and maybe that's just a mindset thing at a, at a firm versus, versus staying at one place versus going somewhere else. I think maybe there's less motivation for most people in a firm to really show that kind of vigor to get to the, to the next level, knowing that it doesn't happen for anybody unless they've already had three years doing it versus going somewhere else. You maybe are willing to stretch yourself and really go for it and prove yourself and get that title sooner. I don't know. Like that, that is a kind of an interesting dynamic that exists within the career field that we're in. Yeah, it is interesting, especially if the job you're doing is significantly more responsibility, but you're getting paid the same and you're doing it for a year or two and then maybe getting the title. It it wears you down. It wears you down. So sometimes making a move or at least interviewing for a potential shift uh, might open the eyes of the company you're at and be like, oh, maybe she is ready. (laughs) Maybe she is ready. But chances are it's not going to be that case. The case. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, I, what I see throughout this conversation is just kind of this level of self awareness that you have about yourself, and to me, that is something that and we hear about it a lot. I think in in recent years about having self awareness, and I think part of that comes from having all these different kinds of experiences, leading others, and. I think that gives insight into ourselves as well uh, about things that we might want to pay attention to within ourselves because we're hopefully paying attention to those things in other people. And there's quite a lack of that still within the profession of architecture. And, and that I think is where there's a lot of pain there. <laughs> there's, why, why don't these people work harder? Why don't they work more? Why is it when the clock hits this, they log off, right? And because I don't do that, that's, I think that's a lack of self-awareness. It isn't a, a complete understanding of who those individuals are and what their priorities are and what makes up their life. The honest truth is that like, that stuff is available to those people. They could put in the effort to find that out, but it, a lot of people have a hard time crossing that, that chasm to doing that but i see the self-awareness in you i think that's what keeps coming like this theme keeps coming up um, throughout the conversation and that's pretty refreshing i feel like uh, what you just described is probably like an old school way of being in this industry like the self-deprecating 80 hours a week no personal life all-nighters like that's you know it's kind of ingrained in us when we're in school Oh, it absolutely is right? We're trained to be like that. Yeah. I feel like this generation and I kind of, I'm dubbing myself as part of this generation, although it may be. It's a mindset, not any. It is a mindset. You're right. <laughs> you know, the priorities shift. The The younger generation, I think, is more into um, personal time boundaries. Not necessarily, oh, it's five o'clock. I got a clock out, but more of. I have another commitment to my health. Let's say I have a, whatever, let's say it's a, I have a yoga class I need to get to. I'm going to my yoga class. 
if I need to put in a little bit of overtime in order to get this deadline met, I will do it, but I'm not going to do it per your, per your uh, vision of how it's going to get done. It'll get done, but I'm also, I also have these boundaries and these pr- other priorities I have in my life, and it's not just work. I think even if it's not just the young generation who has this mindset, I think some of the older generation is starting to think that way too and recognizing, hey, you know what? <laughs> I need to set boundaries, especially when you work from home. You can easily be on your computer any time of day, accessible to anyone at any time of the day. That doesn't mean that it's okay. So if you're not setting the boundaries, I don't want to be making personal, you know, uh, professional calls after 6 p.m. because I want to sit down and have dinner with my family. People should be able to respect that. So hopefully the older generation way of thinking, hopefully they're starting to understand that, yes, I should be respectful of how my employees are working, but maybe I can do that too. And maybe, <laughs> maybe that's okay. And the project will be successful. Maybe exactly. I'll be a happier person. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this is a long career and, and I would hope that people do take their own personal Happiness, meaning all of those things into account when thinking about that length of the career. So, because that does lead to better work, it does lead to more meaningful connections with people, positive impacts on our communities, all of those things. I think if you're miserable for whatever reason, for (laughs) there's so many reasons, right? But, but if you are, then that, that does not lead to as positive of outcomes as the things that we just described. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be a balance. There has to be. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And is there anywhere that, that you can put out there for people to follow along with what you're doing, get to know you a little bit better? I, you used to be a lot more active on social media, not as much now, but I know that you just took a have joined a board uh, and you're with the women in architecture. So maybe you can throw out some places where people can learn more about the work that you're doing. Yeah. I I think the best place to connect with me or learn is would be LinkedIn, which is the professional site. Um, I feel like some of the other networks like Twitter, not so much. I do have an Instagram, a public one, not very active on it, but I would say LinkedIn is a place to learn about stuff because I'm most active on it. But yes, I just got on the AIA Orange County Board as Director of Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Justice, which is a mouthful, EDI plus J. In my position, I I oversee the EDI plus J Committee as well as the Women in Architecture Committee. My goals for this term, which is a two-year term, is putting on programs, not just programs that celebrate people and educate people, but they're also advocating for people and equitable design and not just one group of people. It has to be equitable across the board. So what that looks like hundred percent, I can't tell you right now I'm working through it. I just started this term. Um, so that's AIA. And then obviously my position with DLR group as a seller doer. Sometimes I talk about some of the work that we're doing and if we're hiring on there too. So LinkedIn would be the place to go to connect with me. I will put that link in the show notes so people can go right there. Thank you again so much for taking the time today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thanks, Evan. Appreciate you inviting me on the show.
Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit GetAvail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. Thanks to NCARB for their support of this podcast episode. Visit NCARB.org slash AOP and contribute to the analysis of practice survey today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.